Let's begin with an invocation and prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, we left off in Second Kings, right at chapter 11, verse 4. As has been the case for some weeks, and as will continue to be the case, these are uh, not easy sections of Scripture, sometimes because of the content or the nature of the content. There are certainly some oddities here, um, some idiomatic speech and things to fetch out in that regard. But what I find most difficult, and maybe this is just my own weakness and limitation, is trying to keep everyone straight between the two kingdoms and how everyone's related and everything else. Uh, there is so much depth and detail here. If you wanted to take a deep dive into it and really pay attention to all the connections, I mean, there is an immense amount of just fantastic material here. I'm in no way disparaging it. I am just saying for the purposes of a, of a study that's one hour out of the week, <laughs> there's only so much you can do to prepare and only so much you can do as we go through this. So please bear with me in that regard. Now, the major figure we've left off with, of course, is Jehu. And Jehu is mentioned. Jehu and Hezael are mentioned all the way back in 1 Kings, um, along with Elijah. These are the three major players in this next episode. God promises to Elijah, remember, he's in the cave, and he comes, and there's the there's the fire and the whirlwind and the earthquake and then the still small voice. And God's answer to Elijah's prayer and complaint is these three folks, Elisha, Jehu, and Hezael. So they factor large and they are God's judgment upon uh, particularly the house of Ahab and Jezebel, but then also all of paganized Israel slash Judah. So we have come to the end of Jehu's reign, and then we enter this new phase with Atalia in chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. And Atalia is the mother of Ahaziah, but of course she is the daughter of Jezebel. So Atalia, bad. Atalia, like her mom, the uh, walnut doesn't fall too far from the walnut tree, uh, decides it's going to be a good idea to kill everyone so that she can reign. And so she initiates this purge. Only one heir or potential heir survives, Joash. And Joash uh, is where we pick up then in chapter 11, verse 4. We're introduced to the faithful priest Jehoiada who cares for Joash, and we'll see that part of the narrative unfold. Verse 4, but in the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of the Kerites and of the guards and had them come to him in the house of the Lord. Now, the study note points out some detail about the, the Kerites or what, what this name might be derivative of. Uh, I'll just simply commend that to you if you're interested in, in that level of detail. It's not terribly important for the narrative at hand. 
Continuing where we left off in the midst of verse 4. And he, Jehoiada, made a covenant with them and put them under oath in the house of the Lord. So this is the temple. And he showed them the king's son. So this would be Joash. Um, at the time where he becomes king, he's seven years old. And so, you know, around seven years old. Obviously, he's in hiding for fear of Atalia, who's ruling and leading everything at this point in time and you know, has been doing this purge. Verse 5, And he, Jehoiada, commanded them, This is the king that you... This is the... Excuse me. This is the thing that you shall do. One-third of you, those who come off duty on the Sabbath and guard the king's house, another third being at the gate, sir and a third at the gate behind the guards shall guard the palace. And the two divisions of you which come on duty in force on the Sabbath and guard the house of the Lord on behalf of the king shall surround the king, each with his weapons in his hand. And whoever approaches the ranks is to be put to death. Be with the king when he goes out and when he comes in. Okay, as uh, the study note set on verses 5 through 7 says, not every detail of the plot is clear. <laughs> yeah, to be sure. That's a, that's a very succinct way of saying, we don't exactly know what's going on here with all these rotations and gates. Obviously, it made sense to them. It made sense to them even up until the time of the writing of Second Kings. But it's largely lost to us, our ability to comprehend this specific section. What is not lost, though, is kind of this remarkable typological picture, I think, of the child king in the temple. And it really, in some ways, flashes us forward to our Lord's coming into the temple when he's 12 years old and, and the true child king, the true Messiah, being in the temple of the Lord. Um, albeit these are very different circumstances, and yet, uh, what do we see? Joash, the child king in the temple, they're, they're going to put him to death. And of course, what do we know about our Lord Jesus, the true child king in the temple, even at 12? Uh, they're going to try to put him to death. And so we see some parallels there. We see a kind of type and typology here, even though it is a bit subtle. So to be clear, uh, jo Jehoiada has come up with this very bold and faithful plan. Joash is to be the king. He's to be protected by the guards. This is obviously, you know, a a quote-unquote treasonous activity because Atalia is reigning, but of course we know the nature of her reign. She is the bad guy. And so these are the good guys. Verse 9, The captains did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded, and they each brought his men who were to go off duty on the Sabbath with those who were to come on duty on the Sabbath, and came to Jehoiada the priest. And the priest gave to the captains the spears and shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of the Lord. So these are ceremonial spears and shields. You remember these from time to time. They get carted off by, or at least once, they get carted off by an enemy and recovered. So, uh, you know, again, this is, uh, to me, what this detail shows is just deeply rich symbolism typology. You know, this is... This is, in a sense, a typology of the son of David with uh, David's items, his ceremonial items, and the temple surrounding him. I mean, again, I think, I think we're encouraged to see here an image and foreshadowing of Christ. 
Verse 11, And the guard stood every man with his weapons in his hand, from the south side of the house to the north side of the house, around the altar and the house on behalf of the king. Then he brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony, which of course is the copy of the law. So the study note points out that according to 1 Kings 2.3, the crown and the law were the insignia of the royal office. And they proclaimed him king and anointed him, and they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king. When Atalia heard the noise of the guard and of the people, she went into the house of the Lord to the people. And when she looked, there was the king standing by the pillar according to the custom, and the captains and the trumpeters beside the king, and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets. And Atalia was miffed. <laughs> because she thought she was the queen. And she had, you know, very, very truly spared no expense, including the expense of her soul, uh, to accomplish this. Now it was being taken away from her. And Italia tore her clothes and cried, Treason! Treason! <laughs> then Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains who were set over the army, bring her out between the ranks, and put to death with the sword anyone who follows her. For the priest said, Let her not be put to death in the house of the Lord. So they laid hands on her, and she went through the horse's entrance to the king's house, and there was put to death. All right, so there's the end of uh, daughter of Jezebel. Uh, she too is put to death in an act of, of divine judgment here. Um, they don't want her blood in the temple, understandably so. And uh, the horse's entrance, we don't really know that much about that. It says, apparently the entrance closer to the temple court where the king or guests brought up their chariots. Again, that doesn't give us a whole lot of information. Okay, so thus ends... Uh, the reign of terror that was Atalia's, and thus begins a rather hopeful reign because you have a faithful priest anointing a child king, you have the ceremonial items of David, you have the testimony, the law of God, you have the crown, you have all these uh, images that in the, you know, in, the, in the short term here indicate that this is uh, at least comparatively, and I think that's a fair way of putting it, comparatively, Jehoiada is going to be, a, or excuse me, Joash is going to be a good king. Um, and then all of these elements, too, point us forward to the true king, our Lord Jesus. Okay, verse 17. And Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and people, that they should be the Lord's people, and also between the king and the people. Okay, so, of course, in this, uh, the first half of the covenant, if you will, um, 
the Lord is one party, the king and people are the other party, and a covenant is made between them that they should be the Lord's people. And then a second covenant, or the other side of the covenant, I don't know, the twofold covenant here, is between the king and the people. Then all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down. His altars and his images they broke in pieces, and they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And the priest posted watchmen, um, so this is the priest is Jehoiada, um, posted watchmen over the house of the Lord. You know, so there's not some sort of reverse attack here going on, probably. Uh, so this is interesting because this Matan figure is brought in by Jezebel and, of course, um, supported by uh, Atalia. Once Atalia is killed, then they go and attack this temple of Baal and rid themselves of Matan. Um, you know, interest, interesting, of course, because this, you know, the study Bible wanted to critique Jehu for killing uh, priests of Baal, but there's no critique here. So, yeah. There's a lot of things missing in this whole narrative. I don't understand. Oh, a lot of things missing from the narrative that you don't. Yeah. Well, I would I would agree that it's fairly Spartan and moving quickly here. Yeah. One. I have a hard time with who is supporting her. When she becomes queen, she's automatically, where is she getting the guards, the soldiers, to wipe out the house of David? Mm-hmm. And why are they following her? I mean, all of a sudden now they want a queen instead of a king? I mean, I, I thought this was a male-dominated society, and now you're telling me, oh, we have a queen. Yeah, well, all we have, okay, so so Atalia as the as the daughter of Jezebel, the most information we have about her, at least here in 2 Kings, obviously, goes back to verses 1 through 3. She is the mother of Ahaziah, um, and so she destroys all the royal family. I mean, I don't, I don't know that she has to have some kind of great force to be able to do that, you know, just the guard around her, maybe. Um, a few of the key leaders or soldiers in order to do that aspect. And Obviously, she wasn't terribly popular. You know, obviously not. Um, it seems that her reign is approximately six years. So, for what it's worth. Obviously, Jehoiada doesn't have much resistance when he gathers, uh, you know, the Kerites and the guards. and okay. Sort of has this coup. Yeah, I don't know. It's, I mean, there's uh, certainly we could... Uh, we could want for a little more information. And uh, truth be told, I did not look over at the parallels in Chronicles, um, which may, in fact, give more information. So if this is of particular interest, you may search in Chronicles and no, see if I you can find that. Why a queen all of a sudden when that was all the... Why did people do that? Yeah, well, because, uh, yeah. I mean, her argument is all the heirs are gone. I guess it's just me. Yeah. <laughs> may I just interject. Please. I think people just sometimes have chutzpah and they don't play by, play by the king's rules. Like, and you're playing Monopoly, you know, you get only two you say you throw the dice and maybe somebody cheats by an extra step. That's, a, that's just a little thing. But then some people come and throw the board over and throw it on the floor and everything, everything's wrecked. <laughs> then what do people do? Well, true. And, and we see, I mean, 
probably probably Jezebel and Atalia would be um, very popular in American culture because these are <laughs> these are very assertive women, very assertive women, dominant. Take the take the horse by the reins. Well, evil too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I think, I, I mean, some of the explanation is simply that. She's the daughter of Jezebel. So, okay. Well, anyway, she meets with, uh, she meets with an end. Uh, the, the priest of her mother, probably the implication is her priest too, this priest of Baal, Matan, he's put away. There's a, there's a bit of a cleansing here. Baal worship is put away again. I've, obviously, this kind of gets into some chronology issues and some... You know, if you're trying to look at the bigger picture and figure out which is which and how this is all going. I mean, because Baal worship was eradicated at some point in time, we are, or we are told, or largely eradicated. But now suddenly it's back. And so you've got to, you know, if you want to try to explain that, then you get into chronology or maybe, you know, maybe it goes underground and comes back. But anyway, this is kind of what I'm talking about, where if you really want to soak in dense to this book, if you want to cross-reference with Chronicles, um, if you want to, there's a lot here, and I bet it would be deep, rich, rewarding, interesting study. It's just beyond the scope of our purposes here in a class like this. So um, with that, we'll simply uh, move on in the narrative and see then uh, Joash's name suddenly changes. He is all of a sudden Jehoash. And the study note didn't really give us a great answer. It does, it does um, on verse uh, 1 of chapter 12. Did I, did I finish that section? Did I finish through verse 20? I don't know if I did or if I stopped halfway. Maybe I stopped halfway. 19? Okay, thank you. Yeah, sorry, I have a tendency of doing that. Yeah, they kill Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. The priest posted watchmen over the house of the Lord. Verse 19, And he took the captains, the Karaites, the guards, and all the people of the land, and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord, marching through the gate of the guards to the king's house. Um, you remember, and this was, I mean, this is where... Uh, Atalia was put to death too, but you remember how the temple and the king's house are right next to each other. I think the king's house is downhill or something like that. And he took his seat on the throne of the kings. So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet after Atalia had been put to death with the sword at the king's house. Okay, now, sorry, where I just was a moment ago. Verse 21, without explanation, Jehoash was seven years old when he began to reign. And you'll note that there is no study note for, uh, for verse 21. There is an ESV note. Jehoash is another spelling of Joash, son of Ahaziah, as in verse 2. And then, um, so, who knows why, but here it is. So we're talking about the same little kid, to be sure. Uh, Jehoash was seven years old when he began to reign. In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash began to reign. Okay, so Jehu is in the north reigning. Jehoash is in the south reigning. And he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Zibia of Beersheba. So if you go down to the study note on verse 1, 
a boy king of seven years when he began to reign. Jehoash was only 47 when his servant struck him down. Well, that's a spoiler alert. Um, we'll get there in a minute. And so we don't, uh, we don't know anything about his mother. The study note simply says she must have perished in Atalia's purge from Judah's southernmost city. Okay, so just a summary statement there as we begin the narrative uh, about Joash, or excuse me, Jehoash and his reign, which largely is good and comparatively is good. Verse 2, And Jehoash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days, because Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people continued to sacrifice and make offerings on the high places. So, of course, Israel is full of idolatry of various kinds. Um, and the kings, it seems, even the better of the kings, are successful sometimes in reigning in this, but not the others, that, but not the others. If you look back on the study note from chapter 10, verses 28 through 29, while we do have some reason to think the syncretism was diverse, and I think that that's the case, uh, point well taken on the study note, chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, three main religions competed for the hearts of Israel. Baal worship, golden calves, worship of Yahweh. So while those are the main ones, um, this sort of on the high places may be a catch-all, may overlap with some of those. Who knows? But but anyway, those three are the main religious forces um, going on here at this period in Israel's life. All right, into verse 4. Jehoash said to the priests, All the money of the holy things that is brought into the house of the Lord, the money for which each man is assessed, the money from the assessment of persons, and the money that a man's heart prompts him to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priests take each from his donor, and let them repair the house wherever any need of repairs is discovered. Okay, so let's stop there. So far, so good. He's following Jehoiada, and they're going to renovate the temple, which, ah, fantastic. That's frequently the mark of a good king, is when he cares about the things of the Lord and uh, begins to um, either repair them or uh, expand the influence Uh, Now, what you see here, let's see, yeah, on verse 4, you get this study note referring to all the different references to money. It clarifies that for us. So, money of the holy things. General term for all money set aside for sacred purposes, which included the required temple tax, that's the assessment bid, and free will contributions, that's the money that a man's heart prompts him to bring. Okay. So out of, out of these things, and of course you go back to Exodus 30, maybe Exodus 35 as well, uh, to uh, dig these out. Leviticus 27 is in there, if you want to know the origin of these things. Okay, but the point is clear enough. They're going to need to take these offerings and apply it to the renovation of the temple. Verse 7. Or did I skip a verse? I think that that's right. 
verse 6. But by the 23rd year of King Jehoash, the priests had made no repairs on the house. Hmm, where do you think that money had gone? <laughs> Therefore King Jehoash summoned Jehoiada the priest and the other priests and said to them, Why are you not repairing the house? Now therefore take no more money from your donors, but hand it over for the repair of the house. So the priests agreed that they should take no more money from the people and that they should not repair the house. All right, well, the study note just says, uh, if you look below, um, corruption may have hindered the work. King was concerned about the waste of the people's generosity. All right, so we get a flavor for what's going on here. Yeah, so I, I think the study note before is interesting too. The priests were to collect funds from those lay people with whom they were personally acquainted. So there was a solicitation according to Chronicles. Yeah, it's just very interesting, very interesting. But I think we get the sense of what's going on here. All right, verse 9, Then Jehoiada the priest took a chest and bored a hole in the lid of it and set it beside the altar on the right side as one entered the house of the Lord. And the priests who guarded the threshold put in it all the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. All right, a study note again here is good. In Jesus' time, there was a receptacle in the temple for special contributions. It was called the treasury. Um, Matthew 27, 6 is the reference. And then Jehoiada placed the chest beside the altar of burnt offering that stood in a courtyard outside the temple proper. All right, well, there's tons of details here because they say the priests are apparently a different group from the priests that were collectors in verse 8 and so on and so forth. Again, if you want to deep dive into this text, there's plenty of invitation to do so. All right. Verse 10, I think, is where we left off. And whenever they saw that there was much money in the chest, the king's secretary and the high priest came up and they bagged and counted the money that was found in the house of the Lord. So, you know, we have that position in our church that counters, here's the biblical origin. No, I'm just teasing. Just teasing. All right, verse 11. Then they would give the money that was weighed out into the hands of the workmen who had the oversight of the house of the Lord, and they paid it out to the carpenters and the builders who worked on the house of the Lord, and to the masons and the stone cutters, as well as to buy timber and quarried stone for making repairs on the house of the Lord and for any outlay for the repairs of the house. But there were not made for the house of the Lord basins of silver, snuffers, bowls, trumpets, or any vessels of gold or of silver from the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, for that was given to the workmen who were, who were repairing the house of the Lord with it. So the study note on this point says, at first all collected money 
was necessary to make structural repairs. After these were completed, funds continued to come in, with which were made utensils for the house of the Lord. And that's Second Chronicles 24.14. Verse 15, And they did not ask an accounting from the men into whose hand they delivered the money to pay out to the workmen, for they dealt honestly. The money from from the guilt offerings and the money from the sin offerings was not brought into the house of the Lord. It belonged to the priests. And that seems to be in accordance with the law from Leviticus 4 and Numbers 18. Verse 17. At that time, Hazael, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it. Now, Hazael is, of course, the king of Syria, and he's one of these great figures, isn't he? Um, along with Jehu, Hazael, Elisha, kind of one of these three figures we're, look, we're keeping our eyes out. In fact, if you will, flip back with me to 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 7, and we'll get reminded about this kind of... Uh, slightly heartbreaking scene here, the anointing of Hazael by Elisha. Um, yes. So the whole section, of course, Second Kings chapter... Wait a minute, do I have that wrong? It is, it's, I do have it wrong, I'm sorry, it's chapter 8. To correct that in my note. It's not going to work. chapter 8, verse 7. And um, what you see there, of course, in uh, verse 7 is where it starts. It is the whole narrative of Elisha anointing Hazael of king, as king. The point I want to point out is begins at verse 10. And Elisha said to him, said to Hazael, Go, say to him, you shall certainly recover. This was Ben-Hadad. But the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. And he, Elisha, fixed his gaze and stared at him, Hazael, until Hazael was embarrassed. And the man of God, Elisha, wept. And Hazael said, Why does my Lord weep? He answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men with the sword, and dash in pieces their little ones, and rip open their pregnant women. All right, so the rest serves the narrative, but that ominous, ominous warning uh, by Elisha ought to kind of ring in our ears every time we hear Hazael, king of Syria. So back to verse 17 where we left off. Hazael, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it. But when Hazael set his face to go up against Jerusalem, Jehoash, king of Judah, took all the sacred gifts that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, his fathers, the kings of Judah, had dedicated, and his own sacred gifts, and all the gold that was found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord, 
and of the king's house, and sent these to Hazael, king of Syria. Then Hazael went away from Jerusalem. All right, so if you don't, you know, if a guy's coming with his armies to crush you and destroy you, you just pay him enough money to go away. That's what's going on here. Of course, the study note points out um, tribute was paid to pursue peace. Pious King Asa had to resort to the same humiliation. You know, these are the treasuries of the Lord. It's kind of an interesting thing to stop and ponder and maybe try to gather some other biblical data on. Is this a theologically neutral move or not? It would, it would seem to us as though it's not. You know, why would you, why would you not cry out to the Lord, retain the things of the Lord? And see that he might uh, support you, sustain you in battle, or provide another uh, diplomatic way out. I don't know. It invites some. It invites some interest, I think, but not strictly speaking, according to the narrative, because the narrative just moves on rather quickly uh, from this point. It seems that you know. I would say that I would say that the overarching implications for the narrative, you know, because what what is with this? What is with the possible, the gathering of the money by the priest, the possible corruption of the priest, the honesty of the workers, but this money kind of going down, and then all this money and all these treasures being paid out. I, you know, I think I think that the author is just giving us this picture that this is hardly Israel in a glorious state. This is Israel kind of scraping and scrapping to make ends meet. Things have fallen apart. Even when they seem to scrap it together to make it work, then comes a king and they have to hand it all over. You know, I, I, the best I can tell is that's why all these pieces are woven together into the narrative. If somebody else has a, has a better idea or a better take on that, I'm all ears. That thought kind of entered my mind. is like, well, why are, these, why are these details there? That's my, that's my hypothesis. Uh, okay, so your opinion is that uh, Joash or Jehoash uh, should have known better. Yes, he okay. has the he has the law because he was given to it. As we remember earlier, he was given at the temple the law, mm -hmm. and he's supposed to be reading it and all that other stuff. The priest's supposed to be telling him all this stuff. So there's no excuse for ignorance here. Mm -hmm. So that's out of the question. So number two is this is a half-hearted example, and and he doesn't consult anybody. Why isn't the narrative saying, oh, I talked to my advisors, I did this, I come to the Lord to ask us, you get none of that. Mm -hmm. And then, th then he's giving away, I think, stuff that d technically is not, not only not his, but other people think it's theirs. And that's why you get this little thing at his end, they take his life. No. <laughs> Interesting, interesting read. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you certainly take a, I think you take a degree or two harsher read on it than maybe I was. But, you know, it's worth, I, I don't discount that. I, it's fascinating to consider. So maybe let's do that. Maybe let's let your point stand and, and let's consider it as we, uh, as we go. Thank you for that. Okay, so that takes us then to 19. And, you know, to your point... What follows immediately on in the narrative is the death of 
Joash. So verse 19, now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Again, we don't have that book extant. His servants arose and made a conspiracy and struck down Joash in the house of Milo on the way that goes down to Selah. Again, um, yeah, Selah location is unknown, but Beth Milo, the house of Milo, shows up at a few other places. So there may be some deeper symbolism, some geographical symbolism there. I don't know. It was Jozakar, the son of Shimeath, and Jehozabad, the son of Shomer, his servants, who struck him down so that he died, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. And Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. You know, so what do you make of Joash, Jehoash? What do you make of his reign? In some ways, it's a breath of fresh air, because he's not as bad as the other wicked kings. Uh, Jehoiada shines brightly as a light. But Joash has his shortcomings, of course. He doesn't... Uh, doesn't completely purge Israel of worship in the high places. There's this business with the tribute that, you know, a certain reading kind of casts a shadow over that, especially with his death immediately falling. We're not told why, what the nature of this conspiracy is or why he was struck down and who was right and who was wrong in this particular, although generally speaking it's wrong to kill the king, obviously, unless he's profoundly wicked maybe, but um, yeah. It's kind of, kind of one of those gray, gray texts. Uh, please, please, let's get your microphone. And, oh, Liz, were you waiting to? Oh, okay. Uh, this is just for the sake of argument, for fun. Oh, because I, I don't know if that was a great idea. Maybe it was a great idea that he sold the stuff from the temple, but, or gave it to mm. this guy. Mm. But then there's the example of David taking a showbread. So how far you know, do you criticize that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you can think of it, you can think of it Typologically, Well, and obviously there's precedent. I think that's what the king is pious, King Asa. Asa was a good king, and he resorted to the same thing. So I think the study note's saying you can't, you can't automatically denounce him on account of this. I, and typologically, it's kind of weak. It's obviously a very weak shadowing. Um, Christ purchases peace for us and saves us from our enemies by pouring out the treasures of his blood. I mean, there's a weak connection there, to be sure. Um, but one can nonetheless sort of see a connection. Um, I, I think, frankly, I, I, my best read is, is that the text kind of leaves it ambiguous. There's, it's just kind of gray. He's kind of one of these not terrible, but not fantastic characters. Okay. Um, yeah. In the study note on 1219 to 21. Which, which study note? Uh, 19 to 21. Aha, uh-huh, got it. It says that... Um, he came to a sorrowful end because he departs from the Lord's way. Yeah, I've read that in my preparations, yeah. but I didn't know what to make of it. What because, do you make of it? Because, well, I don't know, but in 12, whatever, um, 2, it says, um, and Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I don't know, I, uh, the only other thought that entered my mind is sometimes when the study notes, and I've pointed out a couple of times where it just, to me, it doesn't quite fit the narrative, it doesn't quite fit what's going on, in the back of my mind is always wondering if they are taking a look at the data in Chronicles 
and sort of wedding those two together, or maybe even reading Kings in light of what Chronicles explicitly says, and I'm just not privy to that because I frankly don't have the time to do that level of preparation for this class. Um, it'd be like reading two books, <laughs> reading and studying two books, which is to have. Um, so, so in the back of my mind is always that possibility, and th- and that maybe they've got having this whole picture. Maybe they've got a better read on it. And so that's, that's going on on the one hand. On the other hand, the text has to stand for itself, and we have to be able to take the author on his own terms and see what he's doing. And even if, that, even if what he's doing is sort of um, kind of dissonant with what we might think the, histor- the overarching historical narrative, then the question is why? What's he after? What's he want us thinking about? You know? I think of that, so to give you an example of what I'm talking about, when you look at the synoptic Gospels and then you look at John, they all have the same subject material, right? But John is doing it in a totally different way, sometimes in a dissonant way. You really want to pay attention to that, not in the way of higher criticism, like, oh, let's figure out you know, if there's an error here or some sort of contradiction. No, not like that. But in the way of like, okay, why has the Holy Spirit through St. John seen fit to give us this other angle, this different take? What are we being invited to discover, even if it is sort of dissonant in places, you know, not in perfect harmony or something like that? There's room for that and import for that. And so anyway, that's kind of the way I've also been um, justifying myself, not having studied all of Chronicles along with this, is let's just take it at face value for what this author is doing in his narrative. Yeah, so I don't know what to make of that. Uh, He comes to a sorrowful end. Well, that's true. Because he departs from the Lord's way? From this text alone? I don't know. I don't know. It's it's strongly worded for my taste, but maybe it's true. To me, uh, it goes back to the dividing of the kingdom. I'm looking at this. Oh, yeah, you like this take. This is right up your alley because this is... is, I, I look at it and I'm thinking... As you're in position of leadership, you have to be careful of the people you have advising you. True. And to me, when he had the priest with him, he was doing good. Mm-hmm. And you have to be careful because I'm thinking, it doesn't say in the narrative, but I'm thinking he's getting advice from someone after the priest dies, and the advice is not very good. So <laughs> I'm saying, hey, you know, be careful what happened. Remember when Rehoboam yeah, yeah. talks and he says, hey, oh, no, I'm going to do this with my little thing. Fi- Pinky, and I'm thinking, get rid of those kid, that kid, you know. <laughs> oh my goodness! Uh, well, it's you know, it's an interesting take. It's an interesting take, and I, I, I like I said, I don't. Um, I guess I, do, I don't quite just based on this text alone. I don't quite see it that. White and black, but I certainly allow for the possibility that that's correct. I I don't think that we heard of Jehoiada dying at any point in time. Um, I think the priest that dies explicitly in this text is the priest of Baal. But it would be, I don't know, I don't want to take up a whole bunch of time rereading this so carefully, but it may be... It's going to be too time-consuming for me. I'm sorry. I'd have to reread and see exactly where Jehoiada leaves off in the narrative. See if we get this sense at all that Joash is um, maybe striking out on his own in some way. I don't know. 
Yeah, yeah, which kind of makes him, that kind of factors in my mind into this sort of gray character. How much of it was his own gumption versus Jehoiada's influence on him? You know, not to discredit that, but it does kind of make him a more gray, neutral, passive character. It kind of makes Jehoiada shine all the more, I think. Um, and then especially with this sort of, you know, relatively scandalous kind of death, I mean, I... Again, the study note may be working with a little more information than we have here. Okay, well, I don't know. You're, you can, you're free to uh, interpret this text as, um, as you see best. I think it's, it's fascinating to think about. Okay, so we've got, um, we've got Joash's uh, portion um, finished here. Of course, he's down in Judah. So now we shift gears and we go back up to the north to Israel, and I want to refer back here for just one moment if I can, because this should be a son of, is this Jehoaz? Yes, so Jehoaz is the first son of Jehu. Remember we're told that Jehu has four sons that are going to reign. So we can see that they will be uh, Jehoaz, and then yeah, how's this for confusing? Jehoash of the north, obviously quite different than Jehoash of the south, who we just saw die. All right, we're going to see the death of Elisha in there. And then we are going to see Judah, Israel. Jeroboam the second is going to be the third son of Jehu. And then Zechariah is going to be the fourth son of Jehu, the last son of Jehu to reign. Okay. So chapter 13, again, we're shifting gears. We were just in the south in Judah. Now we're shifting gears back up north. Uh, Jehu uh, has, has died, and so it's going to be his son Jehoaz reigning. Verse 1, in the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. Now, even just from this, can't you tell the chron chronological challenge? Because, you, you know, you just effectively went, went back in time, right? Yeah, absolutely. Back to the 23rd year of Joash. So you've got, all this, uh, you've got all this complexity just woven into the narrative by virtue of the two kingdoms and trying to constantly relate these two timelines. Okay, verse 2. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, which is shorthand for the golden calves, if you follow the study notes. What's that? The go not the golden arches. The, <laughs> the golden calves. Yeah. I mean, this guy, Jeroboam, must have really deserved it. That the Lord just names this entire idolatry after him. And just every time it's brought up, his name is brought up. Okay, so uh, Jehoaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel, bad. 
bad. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. This is apostasy. You know, this isn't just uh, some other kind of sin. He did not depart from them. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael. See, here you see Hazael as the executioner of the pagans who have infiltrated Israel. And this is, of course, you know, like the answer to... to Elijah's uh, prayer, like, what the heck? All the pagans in, who have infiltrated Israel are winning, and so then the Lord says, Jehu, Hazael, and Elisha, they're all going to be my executioners. And here we see that coming to fruition, that Hazael is um, the Lord's instrument here by which he punishes Jehoaz and pagan Israel. So he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, which is an interesting fact. Yeah, you have to say Ben-Hadad's not the same as in... I think Ben-Hadad was the previous king. That This is so bizarre. I didn't have time to look into this, but I just noted it again at how bizarre it is. If I'm reading this right, the previous king was Ben-Hadad. Do you remember what... You, do you remember what um, what Hazael does, he, he murders Ben-Hadad and thus becomes the king and then apparently names his son Ben-Hadad. Yeah. <laughs> that's a little, I mean, if that's true, that's freaky. That's a little freaky. I didn't have time to go down that rabbit hole, but. Ah, I don't know. It's a little serial killer-ish, isn't it? I don't know. Who knows? Hazael not exactly known for being a nice guy. All right, well, anyway, a fascinating, an, another fascinating aside or potential rabbit, rabbit trail in this, uh, in this text. Okay, verse 4. Then Jehoaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. I mean, look at how merciful the Lord is. We, we can't omit that. I, I, my tendency is, is to because you just get so wound up in the narrative. But you have to stop and actually consider this. Like the Lord is so merciful, even though this king is wicked, doing what is evil in his side. He's apostate. He's leading the people in apostasy. When he does come into the day of trouble and calls upon the Lord, the Lord answers him. I mean, I think we can, not that we want to associate ourselves with a Jehoaz and the, and the wickedness of idolatry. But what we can surmise from this is that the Lord is merciful. And even when we have been sinful, even when we have been distant from him, um, the Lord says, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will answer you. Not call upon me in the day of trouble as long as you're, uh, you've behaved yourself. You know, or call upon me in the day of trouble as long as you've been good enough for me to answer you. The Lord is so gracious and merciful. He's like, okay, well, I don't wish this wicked upon you. You're bringing it upon your, this wickedness upon you. You're bringing it upon yourself. You're pursuing it. When you get sick of it, when you get hemmed in, when the day of trouble finally catches up to you, call upon me and I will answer. It's just a beautiful testament reminder of who God is and how he'll respond to us. So the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. Again, Hazael. Therefore, the Lord gave Israel a savior, so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians, and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them, 
and the Asherah also remained in Samaria. Samaria, the capital city of Israel, the Asherah is still there. Again, you can see that the syncretism is more widespread than mere Baal, golden calves, and Yahweh. It's just that those three are the main ones. Verse 7, for there was not left to Jehoaz an army of more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen, for the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. So here you can see the, the prophecy of Elisha coming true, just one example of that. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoaz and all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Jehoaz slept with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria and Joash his son reigned in his place. Yeah, Jehu, maybe I shouldn't have said Jehu's sons. Maybe I should have said Jehu's descendants. That's a little more clear, obviously. So Jehu's descendants. Okay, so uh, now we have Joash number two, Joash of the north. He reigns in Israel. And that's verse 10. Are we done with Jehoaz? Was there anything, any loose chads there? We've got it all. All right, verse 10. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of... How would you like to live in that time? You've got two Jehoashes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, well. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahat... Oh, my. Jehoahaz? Jehoahaz began, Jehoah, I don't know, but I thought I had it, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, and the might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. All right, well, we just heard of Amaziah reigning in the uh, south and the civil war that took place between Jehoash of Israel and Amaziah of Judah. We're not introduced to Amaziah of Judah until chapter 14. So before we get into that, we have um, the episode of the death of Elisha. Let's, let's do that next week. Let's just call it. Let's just call it a day. We've got maybe three or four minutes left, and we'll just do the death of Elisha, uh, beginning uh, next week. The Lord be with you.